Let's turn to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 4. Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. What we're doing with the Gospel of Luke up until Easter is between myself and Brian, we're going to uh, look through Luke, if you like, uh, with the specific intention of teaching us about Jesus Christ and uh, in order that we may communicate Him to other people. And uh, I want to ask you, if you're a Christian, to, to start now praying for family, friends, workmates, people you know who are not Christians, that they would come to know the Lord. I think that we have become very defeatist in our attitude in this respect. We say we believe in the power of God, but we doubt that He can work in our family and friends or that He will work. And maybe one thing that's just simply missing is that we need to expect and to pray. And as we look at who Jesus is, I hope that our burning desire will be to see our our friends and others come to know Him. Uh, I get a number of magazines, and there were two I was going to, I forgot to bring them with me. One was The Spectator, and The Spectator has this big rosy bit in their editorial this time saying, look, poverty in the world is halved, Um, climate change isn't happening, everything is basically heading towards, things are getting better you know, apart from the fact um, the spectator thinks that our current government is a little bit too left-wing, but the spectator's never really happy. But right at the end of their article, they have this sentence which goes, effectively, I'm paraphrasing it slightly, but things look good because we have faith in humanity. And at that point, I lost all optimism. It just doesn't work. On the other hand, I read another magazine which could only be described as um, doom, gloom, and if you think that's bad, there's more doom and gloom to come. And I just thought, and in meeting many, many different people over the past couple of weeks with so many different problems and difficulties, what keeps coming back to me is what every single person needs, what every society needs is to know Jesus, not, not as some kind of religious figure, but the real living Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to begin by, uh, let's read Luke 4, verses 1 to 13, the temptation of Jesus. Obviously, as I'm looking at the whole chapter, I'm not going to go into a massive amount of detail on this, but just to draw together the basic teachings about Christ that we take from this chapter. And first of all, we look at verses 1 to 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. He said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. 
Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. What the devil is trying to do here is deceive Jesus into wrongdoing. And there are three temptations. I just want to state what they are and then to come back at them and look at them in two different angles. The first is simply this. Use your power to satisfy your own needs. That is, that's what he's saying in verse 3. If you really are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus is hungry. He's 40 days without food. It is an extremely attractive suggestion. Use your power to satisfy your own needs. Jesus answers, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. The second temptation, worship me and you will have everything. The devil, as the apparent ruler of the world, offers to give to Jesus if Jesus would recognize the devil's authority. And Jesus again responds with the Word of God from Deuteronomy 6 verse 13. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. So he's tempted, first of all, to selfishness, and secondly, to idolatry. The third is unbelief. Test God so that you will know that He and you are for real. And now it's the devil's turn to quote Scripture. Jesus has dealt with those two temptations by quoting Scripture back. Now the devil quotes Scripture from Psalm 91, verses 11 to 12, the psalm that we've just sung. Surely, showing your, throwing yourself off a cliff would be an act of faith. But Jesus says, no, it's an act of unbelief. Why? Because, and this is very, very important, you don't test someone whom you completely trust. You don't test somebody whom you completely trust. And for Jesus to test God the Father would be saying, actually, I don't really trust you. I need you to prove yourself. It was a very subtle temptation. Jesus did not doubt that he was God's son, and he did not doubt that his father was trustworthy. The temptations are all directed at Jesus' relationship with his father. And I want to just draw some lessons from that for us as well. The temptations that you and I face are all directed at our relationship with God. Because you are God, says the devil, you have your rights. Because you are God's child, because you are God's daughter, because you are God's son, because you are a Christian, because you are a human being, you have your rights. And the temptation is for us to use that and to abuse that relationship. Jesus answers by Scripture, but the devil uses Scripture to tempt. Jesus has enough confidence and knowledge of the Word of God that he is able to use the Scripture properly and in context. Now, we have to be immensely careful about temptation and what we are trying to do. We can use God, we can use Jesus to satisfy our needs, to gain our idols, or to test God. Just think of those three things. Let me just give some examples in terms of the selfishness. You're a Christian. Use what God has given you to what? To demand health. Use what God has given you. You're lonely and you're on your own. You say, Lord, I need a friend. I need a husband. I need a wife. I need this. 
And you get into a situation where you say, if I don't get this, I'm not going to believe in you. I'm not going to trust you. And so we use God to try and get what we want. We're lonely, we're discouraged, we're sick, we're poor, we're struggling with different things. And the temptation is to use our relationship with God as a bargaining tool to get what we really want, which indicates that our relationship with God is pretty poor. We all of us have a tendency, because we're sinful human beings, to manipulate other people. Isn't that how we do it? You know, if someone comes up to me and says, ah, David, you're great, you're wonderful, I'm kind of, I'm going to look and go, what do you want? Especially if you're my children. No, I wouldn't say that, but (laughs) sometimes, I mean, have you, those of you who are married, or you've got a boyfriend or girlfriend, or particularly if you're married, have you ever, uh, say, come home and your wife or, or, or your husband has come and been especially nice to you? And isn't it quite sad that you think, what are they after? Because it's manipulation. We think that that's, we admit that that kind of thing happens, but that's what we do with God as well. Lord, I'll praise you if you give me this. Lord, I promise you I'll go to church twice on Sunday and read my Bible every single day for twice the time I do at the moment, and I'll be especially nice to poor people, and I will remember to pray for Claire Livingston, providing you give me this. We don't usually put the providing in, but that's really what's behind a lot of what we are saying. It's the same with the idolatry. The devil says to us, worship me and you'll have everything. Now, that doesn't mean that we set up a wee shrine to some kind of clothed hoof being. That's not what's being said. It's just the whole standards of everything in the world where the devil says to us, take your eyes off God as number one. Put him number two, number three, number four, number five in your life, and you'll have everything. But what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And some of you are severely tempted in the area of idolatry, putting something or someone in the place of God. It is such a subtle temptation. I find it easy to put myself in the place of God. I find it easy to put my family in the place of God. I find it easy to put my work in the place of God. I find it easy to put almost anything in the place of God, and that's idolatry and unbelief. Test God so that you'll know that He and you are for real. Now, there is such a thing as testing for God's will, Gideon's fleece, and so on. But far more of us than we are prepared to admit are tempted to say, Lord, if you really, really, really are there, then you will do this. And we bargain with God and we negotiate with God. It's really difficult when you meet somebody who says, I don't believe in God because I prayed that my brother's cancer would be healed, and it wasn't. Or I don't believe in God. One of my friends a long time ago at university, I remember him coming in and saying, I'm giving up my Christian faith. And I said, why? And he said, God had promised me that I was going to marry this girl. And I said, "Um, and what makes you so depressed? He says, she's married somebody else. I said, okay. Um, Why are you going to give up your faith in God? Because God lied. Now, you see, what he'd done was... Rather than think God doesn't lie, therefore what I took as a promise was entirely wrong, he just completely reversed it. And that's what Jesus is being tempted to do here, and that's what we are tempted to do. And we need to be very careful that we do not test God in that way. We don't say to God, do this so that I know that you are good. 
A Christian says to God, you are good. And that means I don't know why this bad thing has happened, but you are good. That's my beginning. That's my, my end. Now, I think when I look at Christ, that so helps me because everything that God is, is in Christ. And if you look at Christ and what He did, I love what Jesus does here because He empties Himself and makes Himself, as Paul says in Philippians 2, of no reputation. He puts Himself under the authority of God. This is what He says to the devil, really. You suggest that feeding my body takes precedence over obeying God. But God has told men that they shall not live by bread alone. Therefore, because I am a man, because I have become a man, I won't do as you say. You offer me universal power at the price of worshiping you, but God has told men that they must not worship any but Him. Therefore, I shall not worship you. You propose I should test God's promises to suit my own convenience, but He's told men not to test Him in this way. Therefore, I shall not do so. Never underestimate the temptation that Jesus faced. Sometimes we're tempted and, you know, we just give in. It's as though, you know, there's a chocolate and they are tempted, right, fine. Uh, we, we give in to temptation very, very, very quickly. But there are two enormous temptations that are mentioned in the Bible. One is the temptation of Adam, the first man, and he fell. And the other is the temptation of Christ, the second man. And he did not fall. He won. If you read John Milton, which I would highly recommend, John Milton's most famous poem is Paradise Lost. And it begins in the Garden of Eden with the temptation of Adam. But just as great a poem is his poem, Paradise Regained, and it begins in the wilderness with the temptation of Jesus. This passage is telling us something. It's telling us that humanity is not doomed because Jesus has come and Jesus has won the victory. Now, the final victory is not till the cross and the resurrection, but here there is an enormous victory in terms of Christ, the devil comes and he offers him the most powerful and the most subtle and the most common temptations, and every single one of them fails. Let's read verses 14 to 13. By the way, that's why we trust Jesus and not ourselves, because we'll fall under these temptations, but when we're standing in Jesus' righteousness, we know that he hasn't. Let's read verses 14 to 13. The rejection of Jesus. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about Him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised Him. He went to Nazareth, where He'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day He went into the synagogue, as was His custom, and He stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Him, and rolling it, He found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, surely you'll quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Do hear in your own town what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, 
Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. By the way, one of the advantages of taking a whole section, a whole chapter at a time is you see connections. And here's a connection, isn't there? Jesus, in the first part of this chapter, is standing on a cliff with the devil saying, jump. And at the end of this section, he's standing on a cliff with the crowd wanting to push him off. It's not insignificant. Jesus goes to the synagogue. Synagogue service would be simple, prayers, reading from the law and prophets, and then a sermon. The leader of the service would stand to pray and read, but would sit to teach. What's interesting is that any competent person could take part. Acts 13, 15, after the reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue ruler sent word to them saying, brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. So people would, uh, it would be men, and it would be recognized uh, brothers from perhaps other parts, whatever, but they'd be allowed to say something. And usually what would happen in a synagogue is somebody would stand up and they would go, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says that, and I read the commentary on this, and Rabbi da-da-da says this, and he's talking rubbish, and I read the other commentary on this, and the congregation would just get bored out of their skulls. There was a survey done of men in Manchester, and it was a, wasn't a very official survey, but apparently between 75 and 80% of Church of England congregations are women. And some sociologists are very perplexed by this because they can't understand how in other religions that's not the case. And historically, that's not been the case. I think we kind of think it is. And so they went around and they asked different men, and I was listening to part of the interviews that were done, and there was a dozen men asked in the section I listened to. And of that dozen, only two said they were atheists, that they didn't believe. But every single one of them said they didn't go to church except for one guy who went twice a month so he could get his kid into the church school. Um, But all of them said the same thing. Oh, it's boring. It's boring. I, I don't get that. I do not get or understand how church can be boring. And some of you might even be sitting here thinking, oh, you should be where I'm sitting. And then you, and then you would understand. But, but even when, I'm, when you're, where you're sitting, I, if church is boring, that's almost blasphemous to me. Because it's about Jesus. It's about the most wonderful thing in the world. It's about the most stunning, breathtaking news that just completely blows your mind and knocks your socks off and just fills your heart. Well, that's boring. Now, I accept that church can be boring, but I, I question if that is the case, whether the church is, is, is teaching the right and following the right Jesus, or I question if we ourselves are receiving. Because the people were absolutely amazed at Jesus' sermon. It was about the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah. In Luke 24, we read that he says this, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe that all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. If any preacher turns the Bible into a lecture, you ought to, well, maybe not burn them at the stake, but you ought to sort of take them out and just give them a good slap and just tell them, what are you doing? This is not a lecture. This is not a personal pep talk. This is not, we, we don't want to hear anything more about your life. We've heard enough. We want to hear about Christ. 
and all of the Scripture is about Christ. And it's incredibly good news. He sent me, He anointed me to preach good news to the poor, and Jesus says, it's happened. It's happened. It's fulfilled now. The people are at first amazed. They are incredulous. Isn't this Joseph's son? And then Jesus goes and spoils it all by telling them what they're going to do. You will reject me, he says. He did it before in Elijah's day and Elisha's day. It was Naaman the Syrian who was cleansed. It was a widow from the region of Sidon who was cleansed. Not you people who think that you are God's chosen people. And you are, but you've rejected. And you will prove that by rejecting me. And they're so furious. First of all, they're amazed at his teaching, and then they are so angry that they want to kill him. Again, I think that if we are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, do not be surprised if there is anger and bitterness and opposition. Sometimes you don't want it. No one in their right mind really seeks for that. But it's, it's, it's going to happen because you're going to teach God's word and there are people, even people who profess to be Christians, who will say, I don't want to hear that. That is not what I want to hear. And they get very angry. God intervenes, of course, and um, he's able to walk through the crowd and get away. But I want to think about this acceptance of Christ as well. This is Joseph's son, they said, but they're wrong. He is Joseph's son, but this is not who he is, absolutely. This is the son of God. Recognize him and his teaching. The good news is that Jesus is more than the son of Joseph, more than a prophet, more than a moral teacher, more than a religious figure. He is the one who is to be proclaimed. He is the one who is to be preached. I listened to a debate between Os Guinness and Mary Warnock, Baroness Warnock, who has had more influence on public policy in ethics than anyone else in this country. And she said, and get this, she said she's a Christian who doesn't believe in God. Uh, and she said, I don't believe in God, but I'm not an atheist. This is one of our most intelligent people. And Os Guinness, of course, just he's so gracious and nice and gentle and just showed how daft that that really, really was. I, somebody once came to see me and said, David, I really like St. Peter's, and I like the church, and I like the singing, and I like the community, and I like the people. The only thing is, I don't like Jesus. Could we do, I like the Bible. They said, I even like the Old Testament. But do you have to keep going on about Jesus? And I said, yeah, absolutely. So they said, bye. Jesus says, you will reject me. You accept who Jesus is. Christianity is not about this is how you get this or this is how you live a moral life or this is whatever. It is entirely centered and focused and all about Jesus Christ. Let's read verses 31 to 41. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What is this teaching? With authority and power, he gives orders to evil spirits, and they come out. 
And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. The authority of Jesus in terms of his teaching, he taught them as one who had great authority. It's an authority that comes from God, not from the devil. There was a demon-possessed man in the synagogue. Many in those days who were considered demon-possessed, we would regard as suffering from some kind of mental illness or handicap. But we can't just dismiss all stories of demon possession as that. It's very real. In my experience, it's been very limited to see, but I've certainly seen what I would consider to fit the New Testament criteria of demon possession, and it's not something that you want to see. This man had supernatural insight into the work and ministry of Jesus. Perhaps the man hoped that by pronouncing the name of Jesus, he would take away his power, and instead Jesus commanded him to come out. What I'm particularly concerned with here, and I think what the passage is concerned with, is the authority of Jesus in his teaching and the authority of Jesus in his power over the devil. You do not fear the devil. You do not fear the forces of evil. You do not fear anything that is against us. It's very easy for Christians to be despondent and discouraged and in despair because we look and we say, look at all that is against us. But Christ is for us. And Christ has authority and power over the devil. And that's seen also in his authority over sickness. And again, it's not saying that every single person's illness is sick, but it's it's always cured. But it is saying that, yes, we do pray, and we do pray in Jesus' name that he would heal. And yes, sometimes he does that, but we know also that eventually all sickness will disappear. There will be no sickness in heaven, no death, no disease. And Jesus is here is indicating how that will be. It is by His authority. It is by His power. It is by His cleansing and by His renewal. And so word of Christ spread. The news about Him spread throughout the surrounding area. Tempted by the devil, rejected at Nazareth, teaching with authority, casting out demons, healing the sick, people heard about Jesus. I think it's the same in our culture, that lots of people say, I'm not into religion, but that Jesus guy was all right. It's a kind of folk religion. It's a kind of Jesus as Santa Claus figure, or Jesus as guru, or Jesus as my own personal friend stroke healer. People need to know who Jesus Christ really is, what He has done, and what He asks. And that brings me just to the conclusion. What Jesus' mission is, is our mission. It's summarized in these last verses. Verse 42, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. 
Jesus came with a purpose. His purpose was to preach the good news of the kingdom. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. It is by that that He defeats the devil, drives out evil, and overcomes the consequences and effects of sin. And that is what we are to do. The Christian church has fallen for the trap of compartmentalizing the ministry of the church. So, you get people say, well, I'm really into evangelism. And other people say, well, I'm into mercy ministry, and I'm into youth work, and I'm into worship and praise, and I'm into theology and Bible study, and uh, so on. Some of us were doing the Portabrook course yesterday, and it has different strands. And the thing that struck me yesterday as people were coming is, is how the different strands, how mission and evangelism and church and community and praise and, and Bible teaching and all, how it all gels together. Please don't fall into the trap of thinking, well, if I do this social work or if I do this youth work or if I do this religious thing or whatever… That's what it's about. What it's about is simply this. It is proclaiming and living, telling and being the good news of the kingdom of God come in Jesus Christ. In this past week, I've been in prison, I've been in hospital, I've been in homes, I've been in universities, I've been in a college, I've been in cafes as usual been here in church. And in every single situation, the thing that is most desperately needed, all the other things are needed too, but the most desperately needed, the most crucial thing that is needed is for people to know and to hear and to understand and to accept who Jesus Christ is. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. Now, as Jesus was sent, so He sent His apostles. As He sent His apostles, so He sends the church. If you think that the communication of the gospel is what is done here on a Sunday morning and on a Sunday evening, you're right. But if you think that that is the only communication of the gospel that's done, you could not be more wrong. Because if you hear something about Jesus and it stops with you, then we failed. It has to be communicated and passed on to others. Come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did, said the woman at the well. It's very, I find it very, very interesting that uh, when I pe speak to people who've just become Christians, new Christians, that they very often say one of their temptations was this that they came to Christ, they came to know Christ, and then they wanted to tell others, and then immediately some things put them off. What will my family say? What will my friends say? Oh, I'll be ostracized. I'll be in big, big trouble. Um, and their temptations to back off, but, but, but because they are so enamored with Jesus Christ, they can't shut up. They can't keep it in. I think some of us as Christians, we've lost our sight of Jesus Christ, and we can all too easily keep it in and we can all too easily justify our keeping it in. I loved one couple I know who they became Christians, 
and they had what they called a coming out party. Now, I think that most people thought it was something very, very different. <laughs> and people came to this party, and um, they came out, uh, not in the context that our culture would normally understand, by saying, well, we've invited you all here just to tell you that we have become Christians and we've given our lives to Jesus and it's the best thing that's ever happened to us. Now, let's celebrate. You can imagine the stunned silence that, that greets that. Now, I'm not suggesting that you necessarily have a coming out party, but I'm suggesting that we need to use hospitality, we need to use every means possible to say, this is what it is about. And you'd be quite surprised. You'd be surprised how receptive people can be it is about Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. May that be the case. If you are a Christian, may you know that in your own heart. May you be encouraged that whatever the bad news, the good news overwhelms it. And if you are not yet a Christian, get hold of Christ. Every, everything that this world offers is trivial, is dross, it's dust compared with the glory and beauty of knowing Jesus.